and welcome to episode 179 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Morgan Young, Chris Rudolph, Christy and Ashley, Jesse Soraya, Chris Valentine, Nate Royals, Samantha Kamal, Jen Deleskowitz, Joe Greaves, David Alvarez, Angarad Griffiths, Debs Moss, Amos Brigham, Jeff Hudson, Leslie Friedman, C. Burgey, Scott, Amy Closen, Shelby Yu, and Scherfenturf. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And I will say, I had a lot of pronunciation struggles on this week's subscribers, so I really do apologise if I if I messed it up royally. Um, it was a tough one this week. Not sure why, but it was a tough one. So let's get into our film review. Our film review this week was Pitch Black. Pitch Black was released in 2000. It has 7.1 out of 10 on IMDb and 59% on Rotten Tomatoes. Deadly nocturnal creatures hunt the survivors of a downed spaceship on a desolate planet. Now, 59% on Rotten Tomatoes, come on, what's going on there? I feel like whoever, you know, marked Pitch Black down, they need to have a really long, hard look at their own happiness because this film is a joy. And I know it's a weird one, right? I know people are probably looking going, Pitch Black from the year 2000, that sort of B sci-fi movie with Vin Diesel. Why are you review- reviewing that? And actually, when I was, I'm, I'm currently in Ireland, I got home and I had this real nostalgic urge to watch this film. It was like a craving. You know, like every so often you're like, oh, I want to watch Jurassic Park or at Christmas time, you're like, oh, I want to watch, you know, The Holiday or Elf or Love Actually or whatever it is. I I get that, but with Pitch Black, I just, I had this urge to watch it and um, I was not disappointed. So as I was watching it, my brother and I were quoting obscure lines from the film at each other. I mean, I can barely remember what day of the week it is, but I can remember lines from the 2000 film Pitch Black. Are you joking me? What has gone wrong in my life? But my likes, firstly, as I said, was not disappointed. I actually think this film is really visually quite beautiful so we get like straight into it with the spaceship crash it's done really well and the the planet that they land on this sort of hot dead desolate planet I really enjoyed looking at it visually I thought there were some very clever camera shots and I enjoyed the terrain the world that they created I enjoyed how all of these characters melded together and didn't meld together and basically you the the ship is like a it's like a transport ship it's like a it's like a a bus or a plane in a kind of a in a futuristic world and as a result you end up with all these people together who really shouldn't be together and wouldn't be together in normal life but I have to be really honest okay I think I love this film purely for Vin Diesel's character Riddick I haven't seen any of the other films like Chronicles of Riddick or or any of those films um, I mean, I have some feelings about Riddick. So Vin Diesel plays a villain who is being transported. He's a criminal. And he just, I just, you just kind of can't help but both love and fancy him. And his character development. I mean, he's not really fundamentally my type, Vin Diesel. 
or criminals for that matter, like murderers, guys who can dislocate their shoulders or guys who've had eye surgery so they can see in the dark because the amount of time they spent in prison. Not really my type. But he's he's hot in this film. He's hot in this film. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say it. And I have to give a props to the monsters. So they land on this planet. The crash is, you know, it, it knocks out the ship. And then there are monsters. And they are good monsters. And they make a great monster noise. I'm a big fan of a monster noise. And how it makes me feel. And uh, this one I thought if I was on that planet and I heard that noise. I would be instantaneously shitting myself. They're good monsters. I think that's why I like creature features. Because the villain is just the villain. They're just monsters. They're just trying to survive. They're just trying to eat. So you kind of neither love nor hate them. They just are this adversary that the humans have to face. And I really enjoy that about creature features. And that leads me to my dislikes. So on rewatch, I haven't watched this film in a very long time. And on rewatch, I realise that the script is definitely not great. It's not a great script. There's a lot of cheesy one-liners, which made me cringe a lot. I just felt like, oh, shut your mouth. Don't say things like that. Particularly from, there's a British character who likes a drink. Like his character, he just really annoyed me. And lots of the characters, I have to say, really annoyed me. Uh, Riddick, much as as I love him, has this opening monologue and it is painful to listen to. (laughs) And on a a rewatch, I thought, oh, Riddick, please stop talking. You're really hot, but not right now. And kind of along that same lines, like a lot of the the key pivotal moments, the lines that develop the characters and let you know more about the characters and develop their personalities, etc. Those lines made my insides want to shrivel up and turn to dust. Uh, it's just not a well written script. It's very cheesy. There's various points where you just want to beat up a lot of the characters. And I actually realised that I either disliked or was really dismissive of a lot of the characters or at the very least I found them annoying so that when the monsters rocked up I was a bit like yeah get eaten like see if I care I don't care if you get eaten and I get it it's hard to establish this world and also establish a pretty significant amount of characters and minor characters so I get it I get why they can't do that but I just wasn't that bothered about the characters and and as as the script goes like I felt like I was raising my eyebrows a lot in this film. I understand that, you know, you need to have certain plot points to move the story along. But Riddick just happens to be able to see in the dark. He happens to have this crazy eyeball surgery on this crazy planet where it's always light and the predators that live on the planet can only come out in darkness. So they can only come out once every time there's an apocalypse, not an apocalypse, an eclipse. I don't know, it just made me raise my eyebrows a little bit. But listen, if you've never seen it, it's worth a watch. If you have seen it and you're thinking, oh yeah, that film, it's worth a rewatch. I have to give it four out of five stars. I'm sorry, four out of five stars. Three of those stars are purely for Vin Diesel's portrayal of Riddick. And one of those stars is for how cool the monsters are. So that's four out of five stars for Pitch Black. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, a little bit of a word of a warning before we start this story. Obviously, it has ghostly elements. Obviously, it's about a haunted place. But it is a bit historical because it needs to be a bit historical because not everybody is 
up to date on US history, for example. And this is one of the most famous haunted sites in the US and it needs to be situated within a particular context. So let's get into it. Located about one hour and 45 minutes north of New Orleans and 30 minutes north of Baton Rouge is St. Francisville, Louisiana. And sitting five miles from the mighty Mississippi River is the Myrtles Plantation, which has become one of the most infamous plantations in the USA. It was first built in 1796 and still sits majestic in the southern state. To get an understanding of the place of the Myrtles Plantation as a historical artefact and to gain an understanding of the alleged haunting of the ill-fated place, we need to take a brief dive into the difficult history of the land that it sits upon. It's complex and will never be as simple as I can wrap it up here, but I will try to keep it clear and concise for all the folks like me whose grasp of US history may not be particularly watertight. Between the years of 1763 to 1803, Louisiana was governed by Spain and was known as New Spain. The land was briefly returned to France in 1803 for a few months prior to the Louisiana Purchase, during which the United States purchased 830,000 square miles of land that stretched from Louisiana all the way to the top of the US for $15 million. The plantation therefore saw a quick succession of land ownership in a relatively short space of time, being built under Spanish rule, spending a few measly months under French rule and then becoming a territory of the United States in the early 1800s. During the Civil War that followed, Louisiana became a part of the Confederacy. The house was built by General David Bradford. He was originally from Pennsylvania, but fled the United States because of his involvement with the Whiskey Rebellion. The Whiskey Rebellion was a tax protest in 1794 by farmers and distillers in reaction to the whiskey tax enacted by the federal government. For years, there were aggressive actions with tax collectors in the region of western Pennsylvania. The tension reached an all-time high, resulting in a huge confrontation. This confrontation caused President George Washington to send troops to help settle down the aggression, but this resulted in a full-blown revolution. The Whiskey Rebellion is considered one of the first big tests of authority in the newly formed United States government. But David Bradford was heavily involved in this movement and was known as Whiskey Dave. He was forced to flee the US to avoid arrest and imprisonment. So he came down to Louisiana, specifically Bayou Sarah, to avoid punishment. He lived alone for several years before receiving a pardon from President John Adams in 1799. Bradford returned to Pennsylvania to bring his wife and five children back to Louisiana. He obtained 650 acres of land from Baron de Carondelet to begin his new life. He lived there with his family until his death in 1808. Bradford occasionally took in students who wanted to study law. One of them was Clark Woodruff, and Clark went on to marry Bradford's daughter Sarah and became a judge. In 1820, the house was sold to Bradford's son-in-law, Clark Woodruff and Woodruff and his wife Sarah began remodelling the mansion. 
Sarah was 19 years old when she married a 27-year-old Woodruff. The couple moved in with Sarah's mother, Elizabeth, to help her run the plantation, and the couple had three children, Cornelia, James and Mary. As with any building with a turbulent history, there are many legends and stories associated with Myrtle's plantation, and it is hailed as being one of the most haunted locations in the US. One of the most prominent legends about Myrtle's plantation is that General Bradford built the plantation on top of an indigenous burial ground. Now, you might have noticed that I never talk about Native American burial grounds anymore, and that was because people reached out to me to explain why the Native American burial ground trope is problematic. The land where Bradford built the house once belonged to the Tunica tribe, a group of indigenous people to this part of Louisiana. Due to the influx of settlers to the lands around Baton Rouge and New Orleans, the Tunica people were forced off their own land and relocated. The rumour was that Bradford cursed his family by building the house on top of a burial ground. While the house was being constructed, he allegedly dug up bodies and bones and had them burned. Cursed Native American land is a common trope in paranormal legends. Whether or not the plantation was built on an authentic native burial ground is unknown. Wherever you see Myrtle's plantation discussed, it is likely that you will see this paranormal trope being discussed. And I personally had not recognised how problematic this is. But now is as good a time as any to highlight why this is the case. Critics of the Native American burial ground trope argue that it is deeply rooted in stereotypes and misrepresents indigenous cultures. The Native American burial ground trope reinforces the outdated notion that indigenous people are mystical and prone to conjuring bad luck and evil spirits. Furthermore, it misrepresents the historic seizure of indigenous lands and violence towards indigenous bodies, artefacts and cultural sites. The idea only really became popularised in the mainstream in the 1980s through film, and there are many theories as to why it grew and maintained its popularity. Native American scholar Terry Jean speculates that the Native American burial ground trope gained popularity through five theories. Her first theory is simply that the Native American burial ground trope was so successful in its early appearance that others continue to use it as a reliable and lucrative plot device. The second theory contrasts a burial ground to a marked cemetery. It is much easier to unwittingly stumble upon an unmarked burial ground than a cemetery, so screenwriters used the trope out of convenience. The third theory is that the trope grew out of deeply rooted racism towards indigenous peoples and that the belief that indigenous peoples are evil and intruding upon the land that settlers stole from them. The fourth theory states that the people fear the unknown, and since most people knew very little about indigenous cultures in the 20th century, the American people became wary and superstitious towards them. The fifth and final theory argues that the Native American burial ground trope grew out of the excessive guilt of white settlers for the destruction of indigenous peoples and cultures. In this theory, the Native American burial ground trope is a manifestation of the fear that indigenous groups will seek retribution for the atrocities committed over the past several centuries. Other critics warn that stereotyping indigenous groups results in ignorance and contributes to violence against these groups. Now, I'm not one to lecture. I've been known to get things wrong. I've been known to say things wrong. But I thought it was important to address this considering it is a widely spread story about Myrtle's plantation, that it was built on top of a Native American burial ground. 
And like I said, I've had countless people reach out to me to explain this to me over the years, so I thought this is probably the best story in which to address this. So for now, we're going to put that theory aside and we're going to dive into the ghost stories. Chloe is perhaps the most famous character in the story of the Myrtles Plantation. According to legend, Woodruff took a mistress. She was a black slave girl whom he was particularly cruel to and so perhaps mistress is not the most appropriate term for the nature of their relationship. Chloe was terrified of Mr Woodruff and indeed terrified of the family and as a result she resorted to eavesdropping on the Woodruff family so she could better prepare herself for the abuse that might be coming her way and was warned many times by fellow slaves to be careful and not get caught. But for Chloe, the unknown was more terrifying than the prospect of getting caught. And she was caught, and her punishment was brutal. She was found with her left ear pressed against Woodruff and his wife Sarah's bedroom door, so her left ear was chopped off. Chloe was incredibly angry about losing her ear, of course she was. She was being abused physically, sexually and emotionally and now she was being mutilated for trying to figure out ways to best predict her treatment. At this point, she had had enough and quietly her heart and her head was filled with thoughts of revenge. After her ear was chopped off, Woodruff wanted the scar to be hidden away and he ordered that she wear a green turban to cover it up. She continued to fulfil her duties on the property but knew she wanted to get back at the family for causing her such harm. And then the perfect opportunity presented itself. For Cornelia's ninth birthday, Chloe was asked to bake a cake. Her plan was never to kill anyone. No, that was not what she wanted at all. She supposedly poured poisonous oleander leaves into the cake. And yes, her plan was to poison the children and their mother, but she only wanted to get them sick so she could nurse them back to health. During this time in the South, local healers were valuable members of the community and respected members of the community. She believed that if she could help heal the family, she would be kept safe from further abuse. But the dosage was lethal. And it ended up killing Sarah and two of the children. Once the word spread of what she had done, the other slaves on the property supposedly took their own revenge on Chloe and hanged her in front of a crowd. Her body was then weighed down with rocks and thrown in the nearby Mississippi River. For the past several decades, visitors to the plantation have seen apparitions of a black woman wearing a green turban on her head. There have been reports of ghostly cries, moans and knocks in the night that seem to have no explanation and items go missing at night time, particularly women's earrings. But there is a physical item that has really given Myrtle's plantation its haunted reputation, and that item is a picture. The picture was taken in 1992, and became one of the world's most iconic ghost photographs. At the time it was taken, the photographer was unaware of what they had captured. The owner was simply documenting the roof for their insurance when they took the picture but the picture contains an anomaly. In between the two buildings, in the picture, a ghostly figure of a woman can be seen standing. 
The photo was examined by a film crew from National Geographic and it has become one of the leading reasons why the plantation is considered one of the most haunted places in America. And there are many who believe that the photo is of Chloe. But Chloe is not the only entity who lurks around the Myrtles plantation. When it rains, something very strange happens. The figures of two little blonde girls appear, dancing and playing in the rain. But while the rain falls around them, they remain bone dry. It is posited that these two ghosts are Cornelia and Mary, the daughters of Sarah. And this is not the only way that the Woodruff children have made themselves known. They continue to make themselves known through a mirror that stands to this day in the hallway of the home. In the grand hallway of the home, a mirror hangs just outside the dining room. Visitors report seeing the Woodruff children in the mirror, and every time the mirror is replaced or resilvered, the same handprint appears. The print cannot be washed off. It is believed that the haunted mirror trapped the spirits of Sarah and her two children, and that's why their apparitions can often be seen in it. Visitors who take pictures of the mirror can sometimes see the outlines of the spirits' bodies in their photographs, as well as handprints that seem to be pressing on the mirror from the other side, as if they're desperately trying to escape. The stories of the Woodruff family are the most famous stories of the Myrtles Plantation, but they are not the only stories of death and despair associated with the ill-fated place. In 1834, the plantation was sold to Ruffin Sterling. He completed the renovations on the house. Sterling had five children and died from tuberculosis on the property. His son, Lewis, was shot in the game room over a disputed gambling debt. Lewis crawled, bleeding to the dining room door where he died. Today, guests have reported tripping in that exact same spot, despite there being nothing in the doorway that would cause them to do so. One of his daughters and her husband eventually inherited the house after Ruffin's death. The pair, Mr. and Mrs. Winter, were prominent and well-respected members of the community. But one day, an unknown man approached the house while on his horse. Mr. Winter came out on the porch to see what the man wanted and he was shot at point-blank range on the front porch. He quickly made his way inside the house, still bleeding and in pain. He staggered up the staircase and died in his wife's arms. The sound of stomps on the stairs still linger in the house as guests claim to hear his ghost on the staircase where he died. The owners believe there are 12 ghosts in all that reside on the property. Clark Woodruff, Sarah Woodruff, their two children... Drew Winter, his three-year-old daughter Kate, who died of typhoid fever, and, of course, Chloe. And according to legend, there were Union soldiers killed in the house after they broke in and attempted to loot the place. Another murder allegedly occurred in 1927 when a caretaker at the house was supposedly killed during a robbery. Today, the Myrtles Plantation operates as a bed and breakfast. It is open to daytime tours, evening tours and private tours. People who stay overnight are encouraged to keep an eye out for ghosts. Paranormal and ghost hunting teams from around the world come to this plantation to look for evidence of ghostly activity. The hit travel channel show Ghost Adventures even shot an episode at the plantation. 
Now, admittedly, in all of the, the slagging that I do of Ghost Adventures, it is where I learned about Myrtle's Plantation. So big up to Zach Bagans for getting us here to this point today. The pictures that I spoke about will be on social media if you want to have a look. Um, they're also on the Myrtle, Myrtle's Plantation website if you're not somebody who's on social media. So they'll be on Instagram, Facebook and on Patreon. So there are other like ghostly photographs that are documented on the property. There's like this young girl in old timey dress has been seen peering out of one of the windows. In this one photograph, that little girl is like staring directly into the camera and you can see her eyes, her hair and her dress. And she is a very famous ghostly picture of the Myrtle's plantation. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about these pictures. I feel like these pictures might be a case of pareidolia. I would be interested to hear what your thoughts are on these pictures because I I don't know how I feel about them. I can see why they became so famous. I can see why people are so interested in them and I can see why people think, oh my goodness, that picture shows Chloe or that picture shows a little girl, but I'm not entirely sure if I fully believe them. I also as well need to give a massive thank you to Sarah Brooke for her amazing help with researching this case. And I don't mean... I didn't mean, should I say, for this to sound like a lecture in regards to Native American burial grounds, um, because I am obviously, I, I am a white Irish woman. My knowledge of American history is limited and I get things wrong, like I said in the episode. But the, the, the trope of Native American burial grounds comes up an awful lot. It comes up in listener stories. It comes up in different stories about different places, buildings and it, it, I think it was and is important to recognise that actually it is problematic. I personally hadn't realised ignorantly that it was problematic until a lot of people pointed it out. And it is a really pivotal part of the story of Myrtle's Plantation. So when you look into it, people always talk about being built on a Native American burial ground. Now, there is no evidence of this. There is no evidence of this whatsoever. Um, There is no evidence that there was a burial ground there. There is no evidence that any remains were found or removed but it seems to be like such a common trope and you often hear these stories where and it was built on a Native American burial ground is is added in too and I'm not entirely sure why because it doesn't really feature in the rest of the story only to kind of imply that the land is then cursed so it's not like there is anything else pertaining to Native American culture or Native American people in the rest of the story so it seems to be a bit of a bizarre Addition, And I just think it's kind of important to go, okay, if you read that in a story, where has that information come from? And why is it supposedly important to the story? Or is it even really important to the story? So the big question I think is, do I think Myrtle's plantation is haunted? And actually, to be really frank, I do think there are probably strange things that happen there. And I do think that people have probably seen really strange things. It's a place that has a really, at times, horrific history. Awful things have happened there. There are documented murders on Myrtle's plantation. There was obviously a lot of slave ownership and slaves treated really badly on that plantation. And I think some really traumatic and horrible things have happened. Sarah Woodruff and two of her children did indeed die there. It is a place of great historical turbulence. Do I think it's haunted? I think weird things have happened, but I don't think the stories are true. I think the stories grew up to account for weird incidents rather than it being the other way around. As you'll see as we go forward, the stories are 
pretty pretty embellished or just flat out seemed to be made up regarding the hauntings at Myrtle's plantation. So so let's talk about the story of Chloe first. So the family, the Woodruff family kept really extensive records during that time period. So they kept records of all of the slaves that they owned. They kept records of deaths that occurred on the property and there is no record of a Chloe ever existing on the property. And there were there were genuinely multiple deaths between 1823 and 1824. Um, Sarah Woodruff and two of her children did indeed die. So her two children, James and Cornelia and her, they all died of yellow fever, which is horrifically tragic. And people say the ghosts of the two children in the rain were Cornelia and Mary or are said to be Cornelia and Mary, but Mary actually lived until her 70s. So it's a bit of a tricky one in that there are records of people dying, but not in the way that the stories are told. I think the story of Chloe is potentially designed to shock and draw people in. And stories like that, stories of slaves being horrifically mistreated, stories of slaves being killed, murdered, those happened. They happened all over the world. They are not unusual and they are horrific and I think it's probably very likely that there were stories of awful things that were happening and that happened around that time to slaves perpetrated by slave owners and therefore those stories sort of got amalgamated into Myrtle's plantation but I was kind of interested about the children in the rain so apparently when it rains these the the kind of apparitions of these two children appear And I was really interested in it because I don't think it's something that we've had before in the podcast. And from what I read, it sounds like these children appear when it's raining. So if that's true, right, if if these apparitions do appear, regardless of who they are, regardless of what children they are, regardless of why they're there, why is the rain important? Does the rain bring a certain energy? I imagine Louisiana rain as being like humid, thundery rain. So does it bring with it a certain type of energy? People talk a lot about water being like a conduit for spiritual energy, for paranormal energy. Is that why they show up in the rain? Like a good staticky, thundery rainstorm shifts something in the atmosphere and causes these this children, this residual energy to appear? I just thought it was a really interesting part of the story. And just to demonstrate as well that some of these stories are, you know, based in truth, but have been embellished slightly to account for these alleged hauntings. So Winter was murdered on the front porch by an unknown assailant, right? But after being shot, he immediately fell down and died. Like that did happen. He didn't crawl up the stairs to his wife. There's no historical record of that happening. But yet we have this haunting that is apparently the sound of him dragging himself up the stairs. So are people hearing things on the stairs and then going, well, there was that guy who died. What if it's the sound of him dragging himself up the stairs? And that's actually where we're getting these stories from. And I am kind of interested in particular as to how the story of Chloe started, because it kind of it has the feel of like a story that could be told all over America or that versions or iterations of it probably have been told all over America. So according to the website AmericanHauntingsInc.com, in the 1950s, the Myrtles was owned by wealthy widow Marjorie Munson, 
who heard some of the local stories that had gotten started about odd things happening in the house. Wondering if perhaps the old mansion might be haunted, she asked around, and that's when the legend of Chloe got its start. According to the granddaughter of Harrison and Fanny Williams, Lucille Larson, her aunts used to talk about the ghost of an old woman who haunted the Myrtles and who wore a green bonnet. They often laughed about it and it became a family story. She was never given a name and in fact, the ghost with the green bonnet from the story was described as an older woman, never as a young slave who might have been involved in an affair with the owner of the house. Regardless, someone repeated the story of the Williams family ghost to Marjorie Munson and she soon penned a song about the ghost of the Myrtles, a woman in a green turban. As time wore on, the story grew and changed. The Myrtles changed hands several more times and in the 1970s, it was restored again under the ownership of Ireland Dees and Mr. and Mrs. Robert F. Ward. During this period, the story was greatly embellished to include the poison murders and the severed ear. Up until that point, it was largely just a story that was passed on by word of mouth and it received little attention outside of the area. All of that changed when James and Francis Kiermine Myers passed through on a riverboat and decided to purchase the Myrtles. The house came furnished with period antiques and enough ghost stories to attract people from all over the country. Soon, the story of the Myrtles was appearing in magazines and books and receiving a warm reception from ghost enthusiasts, who had no idea that what they were hearing was a badly skewed version of the truth. The house appeared in a November 1980 issue of Life magazine. But the first book that mentioned the house was by author Richard Weiner. Both the magazine article and the Weiner book mentioned the poison deaths of Sarah and her daughters. As time went on, more and more authors and television crews came calling at the Myrtles. The story changed again and this time took on even more murders. In addition to the deaths of Sarah and her daughters and Chloe, it was alleged that as many as six other people had been killed in the house. One of them, Lewis Sterling, the oldest son of Rufin Gray Sterling, was alleged to have been stabbed to death in the house over a gambling debt. However, burial records in St. Francisville stated that he died in October 1854 from yellow fever. So the story of Chloe does have like a little kernel of truth in there of this family ghost, this story of a ghost in a green bonnet, this old woman who haunted the Myrtles. And I do think there are some strange things, like I said, that probably happen in this house and have happened in this house. But the way to get people interested, the way to get people talking is to make the stories a bit more interesting. And I do think that sometimes as human beings, we don't like to look at our own history. We don't like to look at our own past and we don't like to look at it and go, God, we were not good. You know, there were there were times when we were not good. And obviously there's still times when we're not good. And as a result of that, we latch on to these stories in order to either paint like moralistic pictures or to make this the history a little bit more palatable, to make it a little bit less sad and just plain tragic. So, for example, you've got loads of deaths here by yellow fever, which are trackable, which are traceable. But yet we are rather to tell the story of a man who was murdered over gambling debt. 
We rather tell the story of a woman and her children who were poisoned. Those stories are far more interesting and far more exciting than just saying this disease ripped through the community and lots of people died. And interestingly, when I started looking at the Myrtle's Plantation, I really did think it was going to be a place that was like a wash with ghost stories, you know, that there was sightings left, right and centre, sightings here, there and everywhere. And actually what what I found is that it's a place that has a turbulent history, a place where there has been a lot of misery and human suffering, but there's very little basis for the stories that have emerged from it in modern times. Am I still really fascinated by the place? Yeah, probably. And I think it's interesting how we've latched on to these ghost stories. I think it's interesting how they grew in the local community because the local community, you know, from from the time these things happened would have known there was no basis of truth in them. But we still latched on to those stories instead. I find that really interesting. And do I ultimately think that weird things happen there? Yeah, probably. I don't think these ghost stories or the stories about the plantation being haunted came from absolutely nowhere. But I'd love to know your thoughts, particularly on the pictures that I post on social media. Let me know what you think of them. Thank you so much for listening to today's story. Thank you for your patience while I have been changing podcast hosting platforms. It's been a bit tricky, I'm not going to lie. It's been quite difficult. There will probably be episodes that you will listen to where there will be a hundred ads and you'll be thinking what the heck is going on there I'm in the process of going through all the episodes and making sure it has an that each episode has an appropriate amount of ads that there aren't too many ads embedded in there and it's taken a bit of time but it should hopefully be all good and shiny and new and wonderful as soon as humanly possible if you would like to find out any information about Real Life Ghost Stories, you can do so by checking out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you are also interested in sending in your own spooky story, send it to Podcast at gmail.com. Please do send them in. I love getting them. I love receiving them. And since I recently did a call out for more stories, I've been inundated and it has been great. If you are desperate for more spooky content, you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time.